You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. All right, kids up to second grade, if, they're, uh, if parents want them to go back to one of those classes there, their teachers will lead them that way, and we'll continue worshiping here together. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So I'll give you a minute to turn there. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And Lord willing, we'll get through verse 17 this morning. All right. Well, just as we normally do, I'll read this text out loud and then uh, we'll pray for some more help here uh, along with Matt's prayer. Just turn to the Lord and ask for him to do what only he can do. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, and as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Oh, God. We just want to recognize this morning that we understand we come to this time of the week with a lot of assumptions and can treat it as routine, but that if we step back and think about what's happening this morning as we gather together, to love each other, to fellowship together, to sing praises, songs and hymns and spiritual songs together, to teach and admonish one another by your word, that this is something miraculous. So please, Lord, let us us be in tune with that miraculous nature of what's happening here. Let us not just occupy a seat this morning or occupy a pulpit. Lord, let us submit our minds and our hearts and our wills to you so that we could learn from you, so that we could be transformed by you, so that we could glorify you. As we seek you through your word, Lord, we understand that it's only by the power of your spirit that we can understand 
believe, embrace, obey. So please accomplish all of those things in, in ways that are more than we could ask or imagine. Please do it all by your spirit, through your word, for the sake of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, again in Colossians, the first uh, two chapters is, is Paul correcting an understanding in the heart of the Colossian believers that Jesus is a part of spiritual experience. He's a part of salvation. He's a part of knowing God, but he's not the whole thing. And that there are other experiences and other, other types of knowledge that you have to gain. And he is simply exalting Christ as the all in all. Jesus is everything. He's worth everything, including your whole life. And, and then we come to chapter 3, and we begin to see how we apply that understanding of the fullness of Christ and the glory of Christ to our actual lives, the attitude that we should have. And then, as, as Galen taught uh, last week, starting in verse 5, how we put to death those earthly things in us, the, the old self, the, the man or the woman that we used to be before we were redeemed, before we had received the Holy Spirit and been enlightened to know and live with Christ. And now here, starting in verse 12, we see rather than the, the negative aspect of what we are to put away, we're seeing what we are to put on. So we start here at verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he's telling us to put to death and put off the old self, and he defines that in verse 5 as earthly. He defines it as earthly. And of course, we're understanding now as, we, as we're coming through Colossians that what he means by earthly is the things that belong to the world, the things that are just natural, the things that you are what you are whether, without Christ. So remove Christ from the equation and what is remained, it's just the things that are earthly. And so we're to put to death what is just worldly in us, what we are apart from Christ. So he defines the old self as earthly and then he describes the old self. He's defined it earthly, now he describes it, listing some of those sins that we walked in before the Lord saved us and made us new creations with new desires, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. In verse 10, Paul says the Colossian believers should put on the new self. So now he's going to define what the new self is and then describe that. The new self is the one who is chosen by God and is holy and beloved. You see the contrast. The old self, which is just earthly, and the new self, which is chosen and is holy and is beloved by God. So there's just a radically different identity that, that can't remain the same when you come to know Christ. And then he goes on to describe that new self by listing some of the characteristics of a person who's a new creation with new desires. We have our definitions. We have our descriptions. Here are our characteristics. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So we want to describe these characteristics. We want to understand how they actually appear in our lives, just the way we understand when we were our old self, how did those sins and those earthly things appear in our lives so we can recognize them and we can kill them, right? That's the whole point. It's not to recognize it so that you can just come to a deeper self-awareness. The whole point is that you would murder those things, that they would not be a part of who you are anymore, that they would cease to exist inside of you. You're a new person. You put those things off. You kill them. Put them to death, Paul says. So then understanding these things, we're not, again, just trying to understand what they are so we can just grow in awareness or so that we can recognize, oh, just the way I see how my old self was sexually immoral or impure or I was a liar. We want to understand what the new self is with, with real, deep spiritual understanding, not so that we can go, oh, now I see what I am. Now I see what I am because I'm a Christian. We want to see what we are growing into, what it is that God is making us, who we are now. And we are not yet these things in fullness, are we? Like Paul says, not that I've attained all of this, but I press on. So we want to press on here. We want to understand what these things are. And it would be easy enough for us to just try to define each one of these terms. What does it mean to be compassionate? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean to be humble or meek or patient? I think we pretty much understand that by now. Maybe there's some of that that we need to bring some definition to, and, and we will. But it's not that we don't understand what those things are. It's that we are not yet those things. That's the issue, right? It's that we, we are not yet like Jesus in a complete way. And, and what's happening here is Paul is describing Jesus. Because just like the whole rest of the Bible, it's not that if Jesus isn't specifically named, now we've moved on to something else. And so the, old, the, the entire Old Testament scriptures are all about Jesus, and yet you don't see the name Jesus, do you? But it's all about him. It's all describing him. It's all leading towards him. It's all giving foreshadowing of who he is and who he'll be for us, his church. So here we are looking at this list of, of great qualities, godly qualities, and we have to understand that what we're not looking at is a list of things that we are, but a list of things that are Christ and that we are hoping to grow into. So here we go. Notice from verse 10 that this new self is, go ahead and, and look, don't look at me, look at verse 10. I'm not verse 10. Notice from verse 10 that this new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The new self, who you are in Christ, is being renewed, made new over and over again in knowledge of the, after the image of its creator. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So you're going to turn to the left. You're going to go backwards in your Bible, not too far, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 12 through 18. 
And try not to depart now in your mind from this idea of, of Colossians 3.10 that the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, so this new self is supposed to be reflecting the image of its creator. Now 2 Corinthians 3 verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, that hope is the hope of being made permanently righteous because of our faith in Christ. We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, hang on just a second. What was being brought to an end is the glorious experience Moses had through receiving the law in an encounter with God. And I don't know if you remember, if you grew up like in Sunday school and everything, that you, you may remember this, but when Moses came down from the mountain, he had this encounter with the Lord, a personal encounter, and his face was like literally glowing from the encounter. It was the glory of God reflecting from his face, and he covered his face with a veil because the people were afraid of him. They were afraid of what he had experienced and what kind of power was resting on him. So he veiled himself, he covered himself, so that they wouldn't have this kind of uh, encounter with him and the glory of God that would frighten them. So it was diminished, it was veiled. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament of the law, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read or the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're all being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another as the veil is lifted as we are allowed to come without barrier, without restriction, in an encounter with God through Jesus. We see him and we see God. And that's a glorious and a powerful thing. It's an experience that changes us, that transforms us from one degree to another into reflecting the image of our creator. Colossians 3.10, the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we behold Jesus, as we see him for who he is and all of his beauty and majesty and power, as we love him and walk with him as our Lord we're being progressively from one degree to another changed, transformed into his image. So let's connect some dots here. What we're saying is, as we deepen in our knowledge of Jesus, we are made more like Jesus. So why do we study the Bible? Right? What's this all about? Why am I standing here and you're sitting there right now? It's not to just acquire knowledge, it's, a, it's to acquire knowledge that transforms, 
knowledge of Jesus. It's, it's coming face to face with God the way Moses ascended the mountain and he saw God and he was glowing with the glory of God and transformed radically. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're ascending the mountain. This is the mountain, the word of God. And as we ascend it, as we grow in our knowledge, our awareness of Jesus, we will have an experience that transforms us from one degree to another. We're walking forward towards Jesus. And the closer we get, the more clear his face becomes. And we love him more. And we treasure him more. We, we cherish and walk with him in deeper and more profound and transformative ways to reflect his character. So what we're doing here this morning is what we're called to do all the time, every day, to know Jesus so that we would become more like him, so that we would glorify him by growing in our character. This is what it means for the new self, the redeemed person, to be renewed in knowledge of our creator. So before we begin to list all of these characteristics and just tell you, start being like this, start doing this, arrange your calendar like this, right? Because that would be so easy to do. It'd be so easy to list these things, compassionate hearts and kindness, and, and, and we would just say, look, you're not like this, and you need to start being like this. Come on. Wouldn't that be easy to say? I mean, the sermon would be over. We stink. That's what it is, and we just got to do better. But rather than doing that, because that's obviously just legalistic and has no power, because do you have, you tell me in, in your spiritual journey and your religious experience, have you ever found that you've been able to just muster up enough strength to change yourself? Has that ever worked for any period of time? I mean, maybe for a day, maybe for a moment, maybe for a conversation, you're able to kind of wrestle yourself under control and keep from saying the things you wanted to say, but did you keep it from arising in your heart? Were you a different person or you were just the same person who didn't say what you really thought? We can't change ourselves, so we're not just going to list a bunch of rules and say, let's do better. Rather... Let's recognize together that these characteristics are all rooted in who Jesus is, his character, and then not just stop here and try to imagine what it would look like for us to become more like that in our own strength, but instead try to have an encounter where we're seeing Jesus and we're being transformed So let's see how Jesus exemplifies each of these characteristics. Compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. We see several times where Jesus is displaying the compassion of God in, in the fullness of compassion. We, we tap into, I think, sometimes the heart of God and his compassion for people, but don't we also live in a real kind of steady state of, of a truncated experience of what compassion really is? Can't, can't we sometimes tap into compassion where we see someone in pain and it hurts us and we feel their pain, but then also don't we have many, many more experiences where we walk right by it? 
Don't you feel completely capable of passing right by someone's pain? But Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus was always in tune with the pain of other people. That's why you see him in this weird combination of his sovereignty and his knowledge and his power, and yet also his existence in the world and and having friendships and being connected to people's hearts where a friend of his who lives in Bethany dies and his friends are mourning and they're confused and they don't understand if you just would have come sooner, he wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus do? He weeps with them knowing that he could have just showed up sooner. In fact, knowing that he's on his way to go raise Lazarus from the dead, he still in that moment sees their pain, their lack of understanding, and he weeps with them. Now, when the Bible says, when the Spirit Spirit inspires that Jesus wept with his friends over the death of Lazarus, do you think that that was just like, you know, Jesus was like, <laughs> you know, because I, like, I already know I'm going to raise him from the dead. <laughs> he genuinely, sincerely wept. Not even just cried. He was broken hearted for them. He had compassion for them. And then we see in the much more full sense that we're all dead like Lazarus, buried in a tomb, separated, living in darkness, and Christ comes crashing in and raises us from the dead. He knew beforehand that he would come and do this, and yet he weeps over lostness. Even as he comes into Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a hen gathers his chicks, but you wouldn't have me. And he was brokenhearted over Jerusalem, even though he knew just days later he would be cast out of the city and crucified on a hill. He weeps. He yearns. He feels deeply others' pain, a compassionate heart. Kindness. Man, kindness. Kindness is not being nice to people. In case you were confused about what it means to be kind, because I know there's a, there's a Christian notion out there right now um, where Christians aren't called to just be nice. They're not called to just be nice people. Well, yeah, of course, but at least nice, right? <laughs> at least nice people. We're not just called to be nice people, but we at least need to be nice. And the fuller sense of what it means to be nice is to be kind-hearted, to be kind. Being nice is what comes out of your mouth. Being kind is what comes from your heart. How does Jesus exemplify kindness so that we understand we're not just trying to be like the nicest person we know. We're trying to be like Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2.7. Paul says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So then our salvation itself is an act of kindness in Christ Jesus. He saved us from our sins because he is kind. Because he's kind. There's a necessary element of grace in kindness because nobody deserves it. Amen? Nobody deserves any kind of kindness. Two sinners being kind to each other is grace because neither one of them deserves it. 
And Jesus exemplifies that in the fullest sense because we didn't deserve it and he did. It was a gift. So he exemplifies kindness to the utmost, giving his own life for sinners as an act of kindness. Humility. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. He says, think like this. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that is, he was eternally pre-existent with God, triune form, second person of the Trinity, in all power and majesty and sovereignty, yet he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. So if you want to become a more humble person, if that's a prayer of yours, if you're diagnosing your own heart and you're thinking, I know there's pride in me, I know that I come in contact with other people, and very often I think I'm always right, I have all the answers, and if everybody would just conform themselves to my image, the world would be a better place. If that's the attitude of your heart and you know it, then you're in a place where you can be repentant. And if that repentance leads you to want to become more humble, then who are you trying to be like to be the, the, more, the most humble person you know? You think like, man, that, that woman is, just seems to exhibit such humility. I want to be like her. Well, who's she trying to be like? She wants to be like Jesus. Now, here's where it gets difficult for us in pursuing these characteristics beyond just human capability and human power, but to actually trust the Spirit to make us like Jesus is the, the first one is possible in our strength to conform ourselves to a person. But to become like Jesus, listen to what you're called to, to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, shame, nakedness, mockery, rejection, pain. To humble yourself to that point, that is the call on the Christian. Not to just be the most humble people in a room, but to be like Jesus. It's a miracle. If it ever happens, it's a miracle. Meekness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek will inherit the earth, which was such an amazing foreshadowing because he's, he is meekness and he does inherit the earth. Amen? You go on, keep on reading that Philippians passage. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He inherits the earth because of his meekness. How do we live in that example? Meekness is having the power to accomplish something, but choosing instead to restrain yourself. That's what meekness is. Meekness too often in our culture is identified as weakness, but it's not weakness. It's self-restraint. 
So then Jesus could have at any point, stay with me, at any point, he could have exerted his power to defeat all those who opposed him and avoided his death on the cross. He had the power to do that. Yet, he chose to limit himself and submit to the plan of our redemption through his death. Meekness. Meekness. He said in John 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me. This is not weakness. I'm not crucified because things got out of control, and then I just tried to make lemonade out of lemons. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus is meekness. So if we're going to be meek people, we're looking at how we utterly lay down ourselves, die to ourselves, even though we could preserve ourselves. I could carve out a name for myself. I could make myself great. I could just surround myself with people who are weaker than me, and they'll need me. But instead, I choose to limit myself willingly for a greater purpose. This charge we have received from our Father. Patience. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, all of those fathers and mothers from the faith who suffered righteously for righteousness' sake, for the glory of God, believing in Jesus who was to come, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, <laughs> says, sorry, that was just an aside, that was not authoritative. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. All right, here we are, looking to Jesus. We want to have patience. Who is patience? Where's my goal? What's the standard? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, what are we looking at here? Becoming better versions of ourselves? As we grow, as the new self is renewed after the image of its creator, we are seeking to become from one degree to another transformed to look more like Jesus. And Jesus is patient. He endures suffering. And the example is no less than the cross. Look to Jesus hanging on a cross as your example of patience. I know that, the, you know, there's the old thing we always joke around in the church, be careful what you pray for. Don't pray for patience. God just might do it. What? I mean, honestly, I know that we're laughing when we say that, but shouldn't we be done laughing about that? 
Shouldn't we be done laughing about being sanctified to be transformed to the image of Christ? Shouldn't our prayers start sounding more like, God, please don't withhold anything from me that would transform me into the image of my creator. Don't withhold anything from me. I beg you, if suffering is my path to glorifying you, cause me to suffer in the deepest ways so that the old self would be murdered and the new self would be renewed. Rather than laughing off sanctification, shouldn't we be seeking it with our whole heart, begging God for it? Don't we believe it's the best? Finally, Paul says, above all these things, put on love, which binds them all together. Jesus was love. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then later, after washing their feet, Jesus says, beginning in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We see Jesus perfectly fulfilling love, giving an example of love that it is to lay our lives down for the sake of others, to be humble, to be patient, to be kind. He fulfills it completely to the end. And he says, you're not greater than me. See what I've done. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. So we know the life we're called to to put on the new self, which is becoming more like Jesus from one degree to another. But don't forget that last part of our 2 Corinthians passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 16, reading it again. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Remember, the, the veil being removed is about, is about the Holy Spirit removing the barriers that, that come between us and a complete knowledge of Jesus, an experience with Jesus that transforms us. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Notice there that it's capital S, Spirit. Proper name. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, transformation, glorification, the becoming more like Jesus, our character being made into a reflection of our Creator comes from the Lord who is the Holy Spirit. Turn to the Holy Spirit. Turn to the Spirit. Believe that there is freedom for those who turn to the Spirit. Believe that in turning to Him and receiving His freedom as a gift, as a gift of His grace and kindness in Christ Jesus, the veil is lifted from your face to see Jesus more clearly and to continually from one degree of glory to another be transformed into that new self which, re- which reflects Christ. Believe that in turning to Him and receiving this freedom, you will become more like Jesus. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, not from yourself, not from your parents, not from your pastors. It comes from the Spirit. So as followers of Christ, saved from the wrath of God because of a gift of His grace, we walk with confidence confidence, complete dependence. And those things are not mutually exclusive. It's an American ideal that if you depend on anyone, you've lost your power. You've lost your confidence, right? It's it's that rugged individualism that America was built on and all of us were taught from, from little children in our school classrooms that if you depend on anyone, if you're counting on anyone, then you're a slave to that person and let it never be so. You do for you and don't count on anybody else. So then this just grates it just grates against our American identity that we would have both confident and complete dependence on the Holy Spirit to fulfill this in our lives. I cannot make it happen. I cannot be compassionate. I cannot be kind. I cannot be patient. I cannot be loving apart from a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But that dependence is not hopeless. I'm confident in it. I'm confident that it will produce what God wants it to produce. It's all I'm called to, really. Depend on Him. Turn to Him. That's what I put all of my energy into as a believer. Seeing Jesus, seeing how much greater he is, seeing how much more power he has than me, which is like saying he has all of it and I have none of it. That's how much more he has. Jesus is more powerful than me. Well, he's more powerful than everything. So we're in complete confidence, dependence on the Holy Spirit to lead us deeper into a joyful, peaceful, fruitful life for the glory of God. Now look what he says, starting in verse 15. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, that is, all together. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So then, this is the overflow, it's the outpouring of this being, this Christ-likeness being created in our hearts. When we're being transformed into the image of Christ, this is the kind of life we'll live. This willingness, this eagerness, this dependence on the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, it is our food. It's how we survive by the word of Christ, his commands, his example, the testimony of the church about him. And we take that testimony, those words of Christ, and we teach it to one another we admonish, encourage, challenge one another with all wisdom that is the wisdom of Christ, the word of Christ. And we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. This is why we're here today. This is what we're doing. This is an overflow of what the Spirit is doing in each one of us to transform us into the image of Christ. This helps This is overflow. This is an outpouring. Now, a challenge for us, again, in in American Christianity, and, and I'm not just banging on America, all right? But we are who we are because we were raised here. Amen? There is a certain culture that's here, and it is not in perfect alignment with the Scriptures. Amen? American idealism is not equated to Christianity. It's not the same thing. So we have to be able to recognize where our culture is in opposition to the word of God. And in our culture, very often our Christianity, although what we do on Sunday mornings is a powerful expression and is very helpful in our pursuit of being transformed into the likeness of Christ, our culture has relegated the entire Christian experience to an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. So that all of the dwelling richly in the word of Christ, all of the admonishment and teaching and singing, and all of the thankfulness is all happening in two hours on Sunday morning. But this is a 24-7 life that we're called to with Christ. So then the challenge is to start thinking, if this is about who I am, not just about my weekly schedule or my routine, then how is this supposed to happen on a Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock? How am I supposed to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in my home richly, in my marriage richly, in the discipleship and the training up of my children richly? How am I supposed to sit at my desk in my cubicle singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in my heart to God on a Thursday. That is the calling to Christian existence. This is life. This is not just Sunday mornings. Please try again. All right, Siri, let me see how else I can say that. 
somehow that was providential by God, and we're going to find out in eternity. <laughs> Look at verse 17, because it sums up where we're headed with this. Whatever you do, don't restrict that to religious activity. Whatever you do in word or deed, everything you say, everything you do, which is everything. Did you recognize that? Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything. So when I sit down to eat a taco, I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, of course, we always pray for our food. Amen, tacos. Amen. What about when I'm filling out paperwork at my job? Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What about when I'm looking for a parking spot? Seriously, whatever you do, in word or in deed. So when the person starts to pull out and then they pull back in and you realize they were just adjusting the spot and not backing out for you on the front row, look for another spot in the name of the Lord Jesus. You feeling me? This is everyday life. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the... Listen, if you're looking for something to sharpen your commitment to holiness, then you start thinking about every single thing you do, tagging on the end of it, in the name of the Lord Jesus. I say this, I do this in Jesus' name. And you just see how many things you'll be like, eh, maybe not. Maybe I won't say that because if I'm required to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, I can't with a clear conscience. If I can't speak to the person in that way, if I can't think that thought in Jesus' name, then I should not think that thought. I should condemn that thought. I should abandon it. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that is going to happen because we are being transformed from one degree to another into the image of our creator. We're going to more and more with a clear conscience live our lives completely in Jesus' name because we're becoming more like Jesus. And we are confidently, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to do that. to have compassionate hearts, to be kind, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient, to bear with one another, to forgive each other, to love each other. It's just gonna have to be a miracle. So then let's ask the Lord for that. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.